welcome to episode two on apocalypticism, which I'm calling Against Future, How Does a Death Cult Enjoy? The historian Ernest Sandine once observed, quote, Ever since its rise to notoriety in the 1920s, scholars had predicted the imminent demise of the fundamentalist movement. The fundamentalists, to return the favor, had predicted the speedy end of the world. Neither prophecy has been so far fulfilled, end of quote. But the joke may be catching up to us, especially when somewhere between a fifth and a third of the United States believes that the world will end in the next century. Among white evangelicals, more than half do not expect there will be a 22nd century. That is, before Jesus comes back. So this has dramatic implications for how we deal with climate change and war and poverty and so many other life and death issues. And my claim is that if we want to understand how Leighton's apocalyptic belief works behind the scenes every day among people who are otherwise very normal, then it actually helps to look at the extreme examples of uh, apocalyptic religious movements and cults. So from its earliest days, Christianity has always been apocalyptic, though the specter of the end times and the importance of the end times shifted around quite a bit. The early Christian sect seemed to think that Christ would return very soon, a feeling compounded when the Roman army destroyed the Jewish temple in 70 AD. Periodic persecution under Roman emperors like Nero inspired the book of Revelation, and surely later persecution under Decius and Diocletian in the 4th century must have felt like, made it felt like the end was near, as did the eventual fall of Rome itself. The word apocalyptic, as you might know, doesn't actually even mean end times, but instead unveiling. That is, something is being unveiled about the world, the true nature of things, but the belief about what was being unveiled is very different and specific today. So for example, how did we get to the rapture and uh, or the Left Behind book series that sold 80 million copies? That's just an incredible number signaling an appetite for end times thinking. Or what do evangelicals think is happening when the U.S. Embassy gets moved to Jerusalem? How did we get to the point of Ronald Reagan's Secretary of the Interior, James G. Watt, that's the guy in charge of natural resources, who said things like, quote, I don't know how many future generations we can count on before the Lord returns, end of quote. He said that as a way to justify oil extraction and cutting timber. So let's step back a bit. End times thought intensified during the Industrial Revolution. We do know that. In the northeastern United States, a following grew around one preacher called William Miller, who lived from 1782 to 1849. He was the oldest of 16 children. Miller grew up in the border area of Vermont to New York and rejected his Baptist upbringing in favor of deism at some time in his youth. And then, during his military service, he figured out that the deist god, who doesn't really interact with the world after creating it, can't give you an afterlife, and he wanted an afterlife. So Miller ended up being drawn back towards the personal god in the scriptures that he was raised with. And he begins working a number of jobs while studying the Bible on his own time. He's, we might say, self-radicalizing. Until he discovered that the world would end in what he said was about the year 1843. He traced this revelation to the same decade of the 1920s during which, over in the United Kingdom, the minister John Nelson Darby claimed to have discovered what he called a rapture, in which the faithful would rise to meet Christ in the skies before a great tribulation at the end of all things. So Darby discovered this rapture in or around the winter of 1828. 
So in America and in the UK, something is triggering two different men to take up the idea that at the end of the 20s, uh, it, it was an idea that Jesus was literally and visibly going to return, either to snatch up the church to heaven or to set up a kingdom on earth or some combination of the two. This was not a normal idea, though they were so successful that hardly any American today hasn't heard these ideas. Miller and Darby each initially hesitated years before disseminating their revelations publicly. Each supposed that there was no public appetite for such a message. In the early 1830s, Miller committed himself to preaching full-time. It's unclear how many fervent believers he had, but he estimated somewhere between 50 and 100,000. He actually carried a list of more than 70 signatures from supportive ministers as he traveled thousands of miles back and forth across the northeastern United States and Canada. He purchased a tent to cover 3,000 listeners at a time to hear the prophecy. He was developing quite a following. From the book of Daniel 8, uh, verses 13 and 14, this is uh, where he was getting this idea. That chapter reads, And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the visions to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,000 300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. So from these verse, Miller thought that Christ would return between March 1843 and March 1844. So after April arrived, Miller was deeply disappointed, and understandably so. However, some among his following blamed the Gregorian calendar and drew a new prediction based on the Jewish calendar instead. So one of these guys, Miller's acolyte Samuel Snow, gained traction by proposing that the end of all things would happen on October 22, 1844. It was actually the only specific date set during the whole ordeal, and a date which would later be called the Great Disappointment. Though evidence is thin, legend has it that followers sold their possessions and waited on the hillsides across the northeastern U.S. in anticipation of Christ's arrival. So why has the global death wish grown in recent decades? The reinvigoration of apocalyptic movements during the industrial era made such pronouncements less than unusual, and Millerites doubtless saw themselves not as a new sect, but as committed students within a Protestant tradition. What's interesting, though, is this term, great disappointment. Though Miller was thoroughly discredited and many abandoned him, his disciples renewed their vigor, and one offshoot reinterpreted the cleansing as having happened, but in heaven instead of earth. The latter's destruction would have to wait. Disappointing indeed. So the Millerites rebranded themselves under the leadership of Ellen White as Seventh-day Adventists, which is a denomination still in operation today. And Darby's rapture was normalized within Protestant and eventually even Catholic circles by the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. So several Revival periods in the 19th century saw an upsurge in traveling circuit preachers. They were part of a church and they were part church and part entertainment, but these preachers really built off the belief that theologians and seminary trained clergy couldn't be trusted. You know, like you should just read the Bible for yourself, and at any rate, we just watched 600,000 Americans die in a civil war. I mean, who has time for training and scholarship with all this chaos? But this populist folk religion also meant that new ideas. However weird, and especially if they gave people a sense of exhilarating mission, well, those ideas didn't need the blessing of denominations in order to catch on. 
Then apocalyptic zeitgeist in the early 20th century coincided with a surge in missionary activity and mass-produced religious literature in America. So ideas brewing within American Christianity quickly proliferated across the world. Today, only a quarter of American Protestant ministers, for example, believe the rapture will not be a literal physical event in the future. Only a quarter believe that. This is an idea that is only not even quite 200 years old. But like I said, beyond the mainstream, the cult gives us a vivid case study for apocalyptic desire. Doomsday cults are always derided for their insular nature, their suicidal and homicidal violence, their misdates. Waco's Branch Dravidian uh, uh, siege stands out as an extraordinary case. They were a splinter group from the Seventh-day Adventist, actually. The Branch Davidians drew federal attention and exchanged gunfire with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms on February 28, 1993. Reports of illegal weapons caches triggered the raid, and the fight left six Davidians and four agents dead. The ATF and FBI agents surrounded the compound while negotiators attempted to get children out. And then after 51 days, Attorney General Janet Reno authorized a plan to use tanks deploying tear gas into the compound. A fire broke out and engulfed the compound, and though a few Davidians escaped, at least 70 did not, and among the dead were Koresh and even 25 children. The adults chose to stay and keep the children inside when the fire started, and that gruesome fact is what needs to be reconciled in our minds. For those choosing to stay inside the building engulfed by fire, Koresh was God's prophet, and it was worth it to them to die, along with their children. In 1997, we saw one of the strangest examples out of San Diego when 39 members of the Heaven's Gate cult committed mass suicide in hopes that a supposed UFO following the Hale-Bopp comet would collect their souls. Its prophetic duo, duo was named T and Doe. Their real names were Bonnie Lou Nettles and Marshall Herf Applewhite. So T and Doe believed that they were the two prophets appointed in the book of Revelation to preach a final warning to humankind. Their message benefited from a number of cultural advantages when they began their group in the 1970s. So, for example, several books at the time, including the bestseller called Chariots of the Gods in 1968, uh, several bestsellers like this book claimed that aliens actually represented themselves as gods to human people, or to ancient people. And at the same time, Hal Lindsey's bestseller, Late Great Planet Earth, in film version narrated by none other than Orson Welles, laid the foundation for a dispensational Christian apocalypticism, which was renewing its mass appeal, right? So we have on the one hand, aliens are gods, and the other hand, uh, mass literature of Jesus is coming back to earth. So Heaven's Gate benefits from this UFO and Christian craze that's happening side by side at the same time. The group's website still boasts of graduating to what it calls the evolutionary level above human or the kingdom of heaven and boarding an alien spacecraft to their world in the literal heavens. T and Doe fully expected to be slaughtered in the streets, and it was actually only after one of their deaths, untimely from cancer, that the other, Doe, hatched the option of suicide. Failure doesn't diminish the message, but instead sort of reinvigorates the death drive. And this is what we need to understand. Failure rebirths itself as a success. For another example more recently, when radio evangelist Harold Camping predicted the rapture would land on May 21st, 2011, he was obsessed with reading the Bible literally as a code in which 
every significant word was associated with a number. And these numbers could be added up to project dates, the first of which actually landed back in 1994 when Camping convinced just dozens that the end was near. He acquired a much larger worldwide following by the time of the 2011 predictions. He picked that year claiming it was the 7,000th anniversary of the Great Flood in Genesis. Followers left their jobs and sold possessions, some conveniently donating proceeds to Camping's ministry, and awaited the day. When the moment passed without incident, Camping followed the Millerite style and argued that a spiritual judgment had indeed occurred while the main event was reprojected for October 21st, 2011. He later relented from predictions and passed away without ever being raptured in 2013. Years later, actually, while driving across the deserts of the American Southwest, I saw a sign warning of the 2011 rapture, which seemed to me like either a vestige of failure or a reminder of shame's impotency. There's a danger in making a caricature out of the doomsday fool, though. The cult member isn't uniquely abnormal, and often the mainstream is cultish desire writ large. Many evangelicals found reassurance in in Camping's failure, his problem in their eyes being less the apocalypticism and more the date setting. So they would say, we know that nobody knows the date or hour. That was the denial deployed. And we see this pattern over and over in apocalyptic belief. Just as falling for the, the small con makes us more susceptible to the large con, failure can actually amplify a core belief, cause us to dig in, in harder. The cartoonish nature of the cultish fantasy makes more bland iterations in people we interact with every day more palatable. And we don't recognize that nihilism closer to home. Here's another example. In 2014, in August, then-chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Martin Dempsey, told the press that the relatively new Islamic State should be considered an apocalyptic cult and treated accordingly. They can be contained, but not in perpetuity, Dempsey reasoned. Quote, this is an organization that has an apocalyptic end-of-days strategic vision and which will eventually have to be defeated, end of quote. The irony was totally lost. A general commanding a superpower supplemented by Christian fatalism saw danger only in the Islamist version. How much more of a danger would Islamic State be if it conjoined its vision to an unparalleled nuclear arsenal? Suppose it were capable of raising the seas. Then perhaps we could call a fledgling band of extremists the most dangerous organization in civilization's history, but unfortunately this award belongs somewhere else. And at the time of this episode's recording, the U.S. public actually still sees Islamic State as slightly more dangerous than global climate change. That level of misunderstanding is somewhere between genocidal and extinction-level case of misjudged threat calculations. In our next episode, we're going to look at the evangelical capitalist resonance machine. A third of Americans, including 65% of evangelicals, believe that natural disasters are evidence of the end times. Apocalyptic belief correlates negatively with education and wealth as well. If your household makes less than $25,000, you are over three times as likely to believe that the world will end in your lifetime when compared with someone in an over $75,000 per year household. College graduates are less likely, less than half as likely as those with no college experience to believe Christ will return soon. Evangelicals are the outliers in all of these surveys. 
Nearly 8 in 10 see violence in the Middle East as evidence of the end. Nearly 8 in 10. And that means that they're seeing violence in the Middle East as a good thing. When surveys gauge belief in the approaching end times, evangelical affirmation consistently lies in the high 50s to low 60s. Americans are at least twice as likely as the global norm to believe the end is near, and white evangelicals are roughly twice as likely as the um, average American to believe the world will end in their lifetime. So to put those numbers another way, about one in six people worldwide think we are on the verge of the end of the world. About one in three Americans believe the same, and about two-thirds of evangelicals believe the same. If you want to know why the political interests of the fossil fuel industry and the bankers align with evangelicals, then we need to look at how they need not share goals in order to share just enough mutual affinities to resonate. So next time, it's on to the climate crisis, the energy crisis, and the evangelical capitalist resonance machine.